Please turn to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It would be where I'm reading from. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It really is good to see you, and I say that with all the sincerity I've got. Good to see you. Think about this. Why on earth would anybody worship a Galilean carpenter who died a criminal's death on the cross 2,000 years ago? Why on earth would anybody worship such an individual? That's a question often asked by skeptics. It's a question often asked by those who doubt. But to those of us who are Christians, we understand that history is his story. History is his story. And apart from Jesus, life and history have no real meaning or purpose. Certainly, nothing like the end and purpose revealed by Jesus. History is his story. I think of funerals that I've done through the years, and often those men may have served in the military, and a custom of this nation is to take a flag, and it is folded neatly, having been over a casket. It's folded neatly by some men who have served in the military. And the creases are crisp. As each fold is made and then presented to the family, that flag is of that soldier who has passed away. Now think of the Old Testament as the unfolding drama of salvation. Who Jesus is and what Jesus represents and how the message unfolds of redemption so beautifully and marvelously that we can really say in the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi are about Jesus is coming. Follow along with me just for a moment or two as I trace this golden thread of salvation that history is his story, Christ's story, and that history finds its purpose and meaning in Jesus and only in Christ. Turn, if you will, to Genesis 3.15. Very early on in Scripture, in fact, not long after Adam and Eve sinned, 
God speaks. And he speaks of one who would be the seed of woman, the seed of woman who would bruise or crush the serpent's head, Satan. So very early on, some, something is unfolded that we might need to take note of, that we need to pay attention to. Turn to Genesis 12 and verse 3. And think about the flag as it is being unfolded. Think about the salvation history that's being unveiled prophetically. One would come from woman who would crush Satan's head. But secondly, in Genesis 12 and verse 3, this one would be the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham. And from him, this one who would come, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Continue with me. Turn to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. Just tracing this golden thread of salvation history in Jesus. In Genesis 49 and verse 10, the Word of God says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the rod from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, until the bringer of peace, the prince of peace. That's what Shiloh means. Until that one comes, we would read, it is evident that our Lord sprang up out of the tribe of Judah, Hebrews 7, 14. He is the lion lamb out of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5 and verse 5. Keep going with me. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament, is speaking. And he mentions one who would come after him, a prophet like unto me. A prophet like unto Moses. When you think about Moses, two words come to mind. The first word is deliverance. He was the one that God chose to deliver God's people out of slavery, out of bondage. And the second term is law. He was a lawgiver. In no one does this find more meaning, greater meaning, than Jesus Christ. Continue with me. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, note the verse 12. Though the context surrounding is quite insightful. God is speaking to David. And he says to David that one will come out of his lineage, his line of descent, who would be a king forever. What have we seen so far? Just in looking at the Old Testament, one would come who would be born of a woman and crush the seed of Satan. One would come that would be Abraham's offspring, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. One would come out of the line, the lineage of Judah, the tribe of Judah in the Old Testament. Jesus fits that. One would come who would deliver God's people from bondage and would be the great lawgiver. 
much like Moses was to the Old Testament, Jesus to the New. One would come, fifthly, who would be of the descent or line of David, who would reign forever. Acts 2, 30-35, in the middle of that great sermon on Pentecost, Peter says, this has been fulfilled in Christ. Turn now, if you will, to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, notice what is said. It is said that one would come who would be the anointed one. The anointed one. The Lord said unto me. The Lord said to me. And it's evident that this one is an anointed one sent by God on a divine mission. Turn to Psalm chapter 22. What a marvelous study, a matchless study it really is to go through the Old Testament to see how Jesus is spoken of prophetically. History is his story because there's no real meaning and purpose in history unless one looks at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 22, Jesus is the righteous sufferer. He's an anointed one, a sent one, one on a divine mission, but he suffers as part of that mission. Psalm 110, Psalm 110, he is the one who would come a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. Talk about an obscure Old Testament character. It's not often that you'll find someone say, my favorite Old Testament character is Melchizedek, but you get to the book of Hebrews and an entire chapter, Hebrews 7, is based on Jesus being a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. What we have in Jesus is better. It gives life, meaning, and purpose. Turn now, if you would, to the book of Isaiah Turn to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. What is said? It is said that one would come who would be born of a virgin and that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. What a fascinating amount of information and evidence is given to show that apart from Jesus, history really doesn't mean much. Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the one who would come would be the servant of the Lord who would bear the sins of of many. The servant of the Lord who would bear the sins of many. But between that passage in Isaiah 7, 14 that talks about a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son called Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew refers to that, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. 
And between that passage and Isaiah 53, which is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New, there is Isaiah 9. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 9 because I'd like for us to think this morning about the king with four names. The king with four names. And as we look at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, I'd like for us to focus on two considerations relative to this passage. Two considerations relative to Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Here's the first consideration. Consider the big picture. Consider the big picture of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. We can do that with five words. Five words. Isaiah 9 verse 1. I hope that you're looking at it in the Bible. Your paper edition or digital. The word to remember is anticipation. Anticipation. The verse may seem fuzzy to you at first because it talks about gloom and anguish and then it starts talking about glory. And really what we have in Isaiah 9-1 is from gloom to glory. And especially is that true if you look at the last couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 8. The idea of anticipation... You and I do not have to wonder a whole lot about what is being intended by Isaiah in these verses. Anticipation, hope, glory, a new day dawning when things had been so hard and difficult. If you look in your Bible maps, you will see that the area of Galilee was part of northern Israel and that the Assyrians when they took most of Israel they came from the north down Galilee would have been one of the first places to be lost here's what I want you to remember by way of anticipation Matthew 4, 12 through 17 quotes this very passage. Where was Jesus from? Jesus of Galilee. He quotes Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. So there's no mistaking what Isaiah was getting at. Now think about this and let this boggle your mind, blow your mind. Isaiah was written 750 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It seems to me that history is his story. And that life ultimately has no real meaning and purpose apart from Christ. But because of Jesus, life has eternal meaning and purpose. Second word. Look at verse 2. And much as 
Isaiah 9, 1 is quoted by Matthew in chapter 4. So verse 2 is echoed in John 1 repeatedly. In John chapter 1, the word to remember is illumination. A contrast is being made between darkness and light. Yes, a new day is dawning. Light is coming when times had been so dark. You think the world needs to hear a message of anticipation and a message of illumination today? I do. And they would find in examining Scripture that Jesus is the light of the world, John 8 and verse 12. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. But look at Isaiah 9, verse 3, if you would. As we get the big picture, it's about anticipation. It's about illumination and being able to see. History is his story, and history has meaning and purpose because of Jesus. But third, celebration. Celebration. Because... When this time comes, the time we anticipate, when the light comes, the nation will multiply and the word joy or rejoice is found just in verse 3, four times. When Jesus was born, good tidings of great Joy were declared. Luke chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. Y'all having fun yet? I am. Isaiah 9's rich, huh? Amen to that? Everybody, you're glad that we can meet. You're glad that we can see each other. You're glad that we can worship God. Guest, we are glad to have you, but nobody is more happy about this than God. That you're here and that we can be together and study about history being his story, the king with four names. So we look for a moment and we see this celebration that men can be made right, humanity can be made right with God through the one who comes. You see, my answer to one who had asked the question, why in the world would anyone worship a Galilean carpenter who died a criminal's death on a cross 2,000 years ago? My answer, because he was heaven sent. He was heaven sent for us. Now look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Explanation. It's the summary word. For you Bible students, verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin in most translations with the same word. What is the word? For, F-O-R. Notice what is going to happen. The celebration would be like that of a harvest when you've had a bumper crop. The celebration would be like that of victory given to 
a great army. When you look here at verses 4, 5, and 6, an explanation is given. Burdens are going to be lifted. Burdens are going to be lifted. Next verse, verse 5, battles are going to be won. Burdens are going to be lifted and battles are going to be won. You reckon that this old world still is full of burdens and battles? History is his story. And the only way to find real meaning and purpose in life is to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And so, burdens are going to be lifted. Battles are going to be won. But how? How are we going to be able to deal with tyranny and terror and evil and death? Oh, the marvelous mind of God. Now look at verse 6. Burdens are going to be lifted and battles are going to cease because of one who would be born. A birth is being stressed. To us, a child is born To us, a child is given. Now look at verse 7. Here's the fifth word. We've been talking about celebration and explanation. Now here in Isaiah 9 and verse 7. Authentication. Authentication. Did you hear Steve Taylor when he read Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7? The zeal of the Lord will make it so, will bring it to pass. God is saying it's guaranteed. Events far into the future are being spoken of as present realities, indeed, as having already occurred. Sometimes in the book of Isaiah, consider the big picture. Now, let's focus especially on verses 6 and 7. Consider the king. Consider the king. And as we do that, let me focus on four areas of consideration. Area number one, his identity. To us is born a child. Well, that sounds like about as human as you can get. Amen? 
But notice it doesn't say to us a son is born. Is born. It says to us a son is given. And I don't know that Isaiah fully understood all that he was saying, but we have the benefit of looking at the whole of the Old Testament and all of the New, and we see the pre-existence of Jesus. We see his humanity. He entered this world. He became flesh and blood real time, and we see his eternality. He is God's Son. He's eternal God. His divinity. What is amazing to me that one of the earliest battles that the church had to fight and it fights even today concerns distorting the deity of Jesus or detracting from the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was born of a woman, Galatians 4, verse 4. In that sense, he came into the world the usual way, though the woman was a virgin, Isaiah 7, Matthew 1. He was flesh and blood. That's about as human as you can get. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. He had to be made like his brethren in every respect. Hebrews 2 and verse 17 and 18. His identity, fully God, fully man, yet without sin. Now that will boggle the mind. One person with a human nature and a divine nature. That's what the Bible teaches about Jesus. It's called the incarnation. God put on humanity. And became like us, yet without sin. Now what is a mediator? A mediator, according to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, will connect parties. Isn't that right? There's one mediator between God and man. Himself, man. The Lord Jesus And so what I'm saying, Ryan, is he connects to you and me as human beings because he's walked this earth. But he connects perfectly with God because he is God in the flesh. That's his identity. Secondly, notice his authority. His authority. The government shall rest... On his shoulder. Thank God the government does not rest on Joe Biden's shoulders, regardless of your religious and political affiliation. Thank God the government does not rest on Donald Trump's shoulder, regardless of your religious or political affiliation. The government rest on the shoulder shoulder he's got a free hand the government rest on the shoulder 
of the one who gives history and life meaning and purpose. And get this. The same shoulder, shoulders that bore our sin belongs to the one who with his shoulder bears the government. He bears the government on his shoulder. His authority. All authority has been given to me, he would say. Matthew 28, 18. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 16. And oh, I love this passage. Let's look at this. Let's consider his dignity. This third area, his dignity. The king with four names. His name... It doesn't say his names are. It says his name. This is what he will be called as his name. And four names, having understood that they all go together, are given. The king whose name consists of four designations. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dignity. Notice first of all, Wonderful Counselor. The term wonderful in the Old Testament is almost always used only of God. There are rare exceptions. But the term wonderful is almost always used only of God. Wonderful. Wonderful in the way He would come. Wonderful in the way he would live. Wonderful in the way he would speak. Wonderful in the way he would die. In that he would die for others. When he himself was innocent completely. Wonderful in the way he arose. Wonderful in the way he blesses. But note the text and it calls Jesus prophetically. Wonderful counselor. Get this, friends. Write it down. Mark it. Listen to him and follow him. Wonderful counselor. You ever have counsel from somebody that wasn't so wonderful, nor was it really even wanted? In the case of Christ... He is wonderful counselor. Listen to him and follow him. Mighty God. One chapter over, Adam. One chapter over. Isaiah 10, verse 21. Jehovah God, the Father, the Lord of hosts, is called Mighty God. 
So when it speaks of Jesus prophetically here as mighty God, it is not in any way referring to him as second class, second rate God because the same exact word, mighty God, is used in Isaiah 10, 21 as well as Jeremiah 32, 18 of the Lord of hosts, the Father, we would say. Mighty God. He's not only the wonderful counselor whom we should listen to and follow. He's the mighty God whom we should rely upon and lean. I have often said in the Lord's church, it's not that we are too weak to be used by God. It's that we are too strong to be used. Only by leaning and relying on the mighty God do we have real strength. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but of God. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. Notice this statement. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Get this, love him and be secure in him. Love him and be secure in him. Everlasting Father. Not every dad is a Christian dad. Some who are Christians are not really Christian dads. Some men love their children who are not Christians. But Jesus is spoken of prophetically as everlasting father. He is the father of time and eternity and he will ever be loving and compassionate and providing for his children. No exceptions. Our everlasting father. Love him and be secure in him. Jesus Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Trust Him and give your struggles to Him. Get that. Trust Him and give your struggles to Him. The prince. He's the prince of life, Acts 3.15. He is the giver of the water of life, John 4, John 7. He is the bread of life, John 6.35-48. He gives peace. Great peace have they that love your law, Psalm 119, 165. A peace that passes all understanding, 
Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 speaks of perfect peace. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. My peace give I to you, Jesus said in John 14, 27. I want to trust in the Prince of Peace and give all my struggles to the one who gives us peace. Not the absence of all problems, but the trust in one who is more than adequate for any and all problems. God, the Prince, Jesus. Now look at verse 7. Let's look at his ability. We focused in verse 6 on his dignity just then. Now let's look at his ability. He will reign eternally. No end. Forever. You can see that in your Bible, can't you? He will reign eternally. Secondly, he will reign perfectly. Justice and righteousness will be upheld and will continue. Things are not what they seem. Isaiah was written to a group of people that the northern kingdom would be lost to Assyria. The southern kingdom would eventually be lost to the Babylonians. The times were not good. They were dark. And yet Isaiah says history is his story. That there is no real meaning and purpose to life apart from Jesus. And notice this, and I love the way verse 7 concludes. He will reign certainly. The zeal of the Lord will bring it to pass. And friends, just as the zeal of the Lord brought the first coming of Jesus to pass, we can all be confident that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring the second coming of Jesus to pass at some point. Amen. And we can trust in wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that there's a great day coming when we'll all be with him forevermore. I'm glad to see you. But I think we'll all be so much happier to see each other when that great day comes. And we can be together forever. If you're not in Jesus, why not? He's either heaven sent or he's not. And if he is heaven sent, there is no appropriate response other than to bow down before him in love, in humility, in respect and obedience. Come to him in faith. Turn from your sins in repentance. 
confess his precious name in confessing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Be added to the body of Christ, the New Testament church, and enjoy, enjoy life in the name of Jesus. Let us stand and sing.